Welcome to tonight's program that we have with President and CEO on the Council of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Richard Haas, discussing his latest publication, The Bill of o Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, moderated by Diana Newton. Before, we'd like to, before we get started, I'd like to thank the Sumner's Foundation, our sponsor of today's program, and extend a warm welcome to all of the Sumner's scholars that we have in the audience this evening. Thank you very much for joining us. The mission of the Sumner's Foundation is to encourage the study, teaching, and research into the science and the art of self-government to the end that the American people may understand the fundamental principles of democracy and be guided thereby in, sh in shaping governmental policies. Here is a little more about the Sumner's Foundation. We come from different walks of life and follow different paths pursue different professions, practice different traditions. We are different, yet one thing unites us. We are Americans. We are the Sumner's Foundation. Developing a network of thought leaders around the founding ideals of self-governance by funding scholarships and investing in programs that educate and engage Americans. The Sumner's Foundation, on the job since 1949. As the council's founder, H. Neil Mallon, wrote to President Eisenhower in 1952, one year after we were founded in 1951, our task is, in to, is to interpret events on the world scene to citizens of this area and to give them a sense of participation so vital to democracy in the actions and policies of our country. Any real success accruing to our nation's conduct and world affairs must be solidly based on public understanding and approval. I think that's pretty powerful. I want to give a very special thank you to the Council on Foreign Relations and the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much for your partnership tonight. We are so lucky and thrilled to have you in our orbit and us in your orbit, and we appreciate you, so thank you. Thank you also to the Warwick Melrose Hotel for hosting us this evening. We have some students and teachers in the audience today from across the region. The Council's Global Young Leaders Program provides essential opportunities for educators and students to engage with our programming, and we're so happy to have you all with us. Thank you to Linda and Richard Schaefer for your support of our Global Young Leaders Program. And also I want to finally thank our institutional members uh, NEC Corporation of America, PNC, Lockheed Martin, and Haynes Boone. And speaking of membership, if you are not a member of the World Affairs Council yet, please join us. We're a members-based organization. We have many, organiz uh, many options on our website at DFW World. We'd love to have you join our group of in uh, engaged citizenry, so do join us. Thank you very much. And so look at our events, look at our membership options on our website at dfwworld.org. And with that, I want to remind you to turn off all of your devices. We don't want to miss a minute of this important conversation. So thank you for doing that. And now I would like to welcome David Cole to the, the podium. He is the president of the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations. David, thank you very much.
Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, before I get into this, I, I just had a couple of words for, for Richard. I was trying to think of when I first became acquainted with him, and it was in the middle of debates that my wife and I used to have early in the morning, watching a certain television show. Uh, there were certain people that were now husband and wives on this show. And uh, it, was, it was so interesting, uh, just, just the dialogue around that. But um, when we first thought about trying to vision this, this program, I so appreciate Irina's help, Liz's help at, 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 the, at the World Affairs and the Dallas Committee because we understood that there was an opportunity to recognize and also acknowledge Richard for the service, the influence, how he has helped shape foreign relations and also helped to advance United States interests. So Richard, thank you for that. But that's not all he did. Uh, there's this little book that's sitting up there that you're probably gonna hear about. And the book, which is the Bill of Obligations, really provides a, a practical and a fresh approach to really helping save democracy. And it also tells us what we need to do. This is, uh, this is positive and it's constructive and it has a sense of optimism throughout. Aren't those things that would be nice to have? Positive, constructive, sense of optimism. So if you haven't had a chance to read it, it comes highly recommended. Dr. Haas is the president and CEO of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a veteran diplomat and prominent voice on American foreign policy and has been for a very long time, last 20 years. He has extensive government experience. Uh, he has served as a special assistant to President George H.W. Bush from 89 to 93, and senior director of the Near East and South Asian Affairs on staff of the National Security Council. Prior to that, he served in the Department of State from 81 to 85, and in the Department of Defense from 79 to 80, as well as a legislative aide in the U.S. Senate. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty busy to me. And it's touching a lot of different places. In the early 2000s, Dr. Haas was the Director of Policy Planning for the Department of State and Principal Advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell. In 2013, he received the noted Tipperary International Peace Award for his efforts to promote peace after serving as the chair of the multi-party negotiations in Northern Ireland. One of the successes that we can look to in terms of what is possible. Our moderator tonight is Diana Newton, director of the Towers Scholar Program and senior fellow at the John Goodwin Towers Center for Political Studies. She previously taught at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. Before moving to Texas, Newton was an International Affairs Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations in New York City and a Hitachi International Affairs Fellow at the Japan Center for International Exchange in Tokyo. She was also quite busy. So, Please join me in welcoming Diana Newton and Dr. Richard Haas for what will prove to be undoubtedly 
a really interesting conversation. And you do what you're told. When it matters, but. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you so much to Liz Brailsford and the World Affairs Council who made everything today seamless. Thank you to the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations that worked really hard behind the scenes to pull this all together. Thank you to uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and to Irina for letting Richard put Dallas on his itinerary. I think we're all so thrilled that he could be here um, and really appreciate those introductions. Um, so I'm just going to dive right in to the book, which I really enjoyed, and I, I echo David Cole. I, I highly recommend it. Um, so personally, I really like the way you um, framed rights as necessary but not sufficient. And um, you explained how rights come into conflict with one another all the time in a democracy. And I think your book, The Bill of Obligations, sort of offers a roadmap for navigating that in a democratic society. But can you share with us how from your seat at the Council on Foreign Relations, you came to the idea of pairing obligations and rights, and whether or not you got any pushback from critics on not putting rights first. First of all, great to be back in Dallas. <laughs> I can now filibuster for the next half hour <laughs> and avoid Diana's uh, question. Great to be with the World Affairs Council. Turns out we were uh, the Dallas chapter, and we were both founded in the same year. Uh, so we have that in common. Uh, and thank you uh, to the Dallas Committee and for those remarks, for, uh, exceedingly generous. And thank you, sir. So let me, let me talk about obligations. Right? Look, rights are central to the American experience. Think about it. If, if, if we were to free associate the word democracy, very quickly we'd talk about things like freedom and rights, obviously basic. And if you look at the American experience, the only reason we have a cons this constitution, which is essentially the second constitution, the first one didn't work out so well, the Articles of Confederation, but several states based their ratification of the proposed second constitution on the ratification of the Bill of Rights. And the reason is at the time, the entire mindset was so preoccupied with the dangers of concentrated power for good reason. We had just broken away years, just a few years before from Great Britain. So people who were fiercely pro-independence, like Patrick Henry, were also fiercely against the new constitution and essentially raised the question, why are we trading a British tyranny for an American tyranny? Very uneasy. So it became clear very quickly that uh, when people gathered in Philadelphia, and quickly gave up the idea of amending the articles and came up with the idea of writing this new constitution that the only way to get widespread sufficient support was if certain protections, essentially more than anything else, of states against the federal government. Took things like the 14th Amendment to make it for individuals against governments of any sort, but that, that's getting ahead of the uh, story. So rights are, though, central to the American experience. Indeed, if you go back to Lincoln, when Lincoln spoke and he talked about the unfinished work of America, the unfinished work was the gap between the rights we promised and the rights we were delivering. And it's all, by the way, incredibly immediate. Here we are, it's 2023, three years from now, 2026, the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And that will be a moment, I think, for all of us as Americans to take stock 
And again, Lincoln's work remains unfinished. And part of our challenge is to narrow the gap. But my argument is that even if Lincoln's work were to be finished somehow, even if there was no longer a gap between the promise of rights and the reality, that our democracy would not be on firm ground. And that's a very long-winded way of answering Diana's question, which is when I was thinking about a lot of American democracy, it became clear to me that rights alone were not sufficient. Think about some of our current debates in the last couple of weeks, the, the, the abortion debate. You have the rights of the, the mother, the rights of the woman, and you have the rights of the unborn. How do you navigate that? Or rights to bear arms under the Second Amendment versus rights to public safety. Or during the pandemic, we had a nonstop debate about the right not to be vaccinated or to be uh, told you how to wear a mask versus the right to public health. And it was Steve Breyer, Justice Breyer on the court, who said the toughest decisions before the court are not rights versus wrong, they're rights versus rights. And that's what led to the book, is that, and it was during the pandemic, a lot of it, and had a lot of time on my hands, <laughs> and walked a lot. And so I just walked a lot and read a lot. Mm -hmm. And one of the great, by the way, here's something I recommend to all of you. I'm actually, I want to say recommend, think about it. If you ever are to write a book, the most, the oddest thing about this book for me is I've written quite a few books. I knew less about this subject than any book I've ever written. And that's not a bad way to write a book because you learn so much. Mm -hmm. And in the course of writing this book, I know, yeah, like when was the last time anybody in this room read the Articles of Confederation? I bet it's been a while. <laughs> or even the Constitution from, from, from start to finish. Or one thing I did in the course of writing this book, one of the coolest things I did, I read every presidential inaugural speech. Yeah. Read all the farewell addresses. Read any number of Supreme Court opinions and dissents. It was so interesting and exciting to get educated. I mean, <laughs> as much as I like foreign affairs, this was kind of a, broke, a break. I meant the magazine Foreign Affairs, as uh, much as I like that. Uh, <laughs> this was still a break, uh, he says as the publisher. And, but it was, uh, so that's how I kind of, I got here. And it was, I didn't intend to, to get there. Mm -hmm. You can sometimes write books when you know what you want to write. This was one I, I stumbled across. Mm -hmm. And I was watching events unfold from, particularly during 2020, mm -hmm. and the failure to have a peaceful transition of power. Right. Then January 6th, the norms of concession clearly had broken down. And all this brought into sharp relief that something was seriously amiss with American democracy, hence this book. Great, well, it's, it's uh, excellent. So the first obligation you have in the book is be informed. Um, and I think we all know how difficult it feels to be informed um, in this era of misinformation and alternative facts. And as you said, I'm quoting, unlimited information venues with few gatekeepers. Um, I just wanted to actually also then talk in um, obligation six, value norms, you talk about, um, and I'm quoting again, elected and senior appointed officials should accept the independent role of the media. Legitimate journalists, as opposed to political activists, masquerading as journalists, ought to be treated with respect. Has the fundamental shift in the ways that we get our news blurred the lines between what I'll call the honest broker newscaster and an agenda-driven activist who is masquerading as a journalist? And 
What about the demise of local and regional news outlets? How, how has that all played out and how we get our information? To answer the first half, uh, yeah, we've got, um, there's a serious problem out there. Look, it was Jefferson who basically highlighted the importance of a free press to a democracy. And it's essential. It's the only way to hold people accountable. It's the only way to shine a light on what is going on. Authority, by definition, exercises power over the rest of us. Well, we need the press to shine a light, to be something of an intermediary. We don't get a chance always to ask questions. Well, they do. So, and it's, it's you know, Jefferson, again, talked about how important it was to be informed citizens. Reagan talked about not patriotism, but informed patriotism, which, again, is central to... Well, the press is one of the principal conveyors of, of information. You know, as, to quote somebody else, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, you know, everyone's entitled to his or her own opinion, but not to his or her own set of facts. Right. We have got to have facts as the basis of the political public marketplace of debate. Uh, I did your local radio show today, uh, and is it Kara Think? Yeah, K-E-R-A. K-E-R-A, yeah. Uh, Chris Boyd. With Chris, Chris Boyd, who by the way is great, great, perfect example of a great local journalist. Uh, and we were talking about, as the example we used in the conversation was the debt. And I said, you know, okay, we have this debt that's $31 trillion. That's a fact. You can't have a different view of the debt other than that. You can't say that that's 22 billion or 40. It's, 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 it, it is what it is. Now, we could have very different views on how we got here, on causality. We can have very different views about whether this is a problem or not, or how severe of a problem. We could obviously and will have very different views on what, if anything, we ought to do about it. That's, that's the stuff of conversation. But you can't have the conversation without the, the premise which is, uh, and that, that applies to virtually any other issue. Yeah, but we, we got a problem now. We live in a world of uh, tons of information. It's the great irony or contradiction of the age. We've never had more information. We've also never had more misinformation. Mm -hmm. uh, part of the problem is social media. Hint, it's called social media. It's not called serious media. <laughs> it's social media. You want to go there and hang out and have fun and watch cat videos, knock yourself out. But it is not where you should be going. There's, there's no gatekeeping. There's no editing. There's no authentication. So one thing is, go to, go to serious places. Second of all, go to, go to more than one. God forbid anybody in this room were to get a, go to a doctor and get a diagnosis that were serious. Well, the first thing you would do is what? You'd get a second opinion. I would think American democracy and its future is a pretty serious thing. Why wouldn't you get a second opinion there? So if you read the Washington Post, read something else. Read the New York Times or read the Wall Street Journal. Or if you watch uh, MSNBC, great. But then also turn on Fox for a bit. Or listen to her and but essentially practice smart information. One thing uh, I love that's happened recently, one of the reasons I'm optimistic, the Garden State. New Jersey, not immediately apparent all the time that it is a garden state, but no cheap shots here, no cheap shots. It is where the New York Giants of all teams play football. Someday you can explain to me why the I'll New York Giants play in New Jersey. But, uh, but, but I digress. Oh, Cowboys fans, God, I just raised the wrong <laughs> issue. Uh, we so don't want to go there, so don't want to go there. But uh, one of the good things about New Jersey, 
Governor Murphy just signed into law a requirement that all students in New Jersey, uh, high school students, study information literacy. And the whole idea is to learn best practices. How do I know a fact and how do I distinguish between a fact and something that purports to be a fact but isn't a fact? Uh, what are the best practices? How do I, basically, how do we make students critical consumers of, of information because there's so much, as Diana said, coming at us. And I th so there's, there's things like that, but, uh, but I'd love to see every state adopt something like that. Indeed, I actually, you know, we'll probably talk later a little bit about civics. I actually think part of a civics curriculum now to prepare people for citizenship has got to be to give people the tools to deal with this flood of information, a good chunk of which is misinformation. So given the tolerance, I mean, you talked about you don't have your, the right to uh, your own facts. Um, given the tolerance we as a society seem to have now for lies and half-truths, no. um, do we have an ethical problem as well? And did you think about be honest as a potential obligation? Yeah, it's a norm. And the founders, the word they often used was virtue, mm -hmm. uh, almost in the Greek sense in the classic sense, uh, modern day word would probably be character. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, if you look at the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, a lot of their principles are not too far off from some of the virtues we would want to see. Uh, so yeah, things like trafficking in facts, not lying, the truth, it's part of the, uh, it's part of the prerequisites. Again, we're gonna have, we, I think the idea that we have real differences is just fine and is actually a healthy thing, and we debate it out. But it's got to, again, be acted out against a foundation, against a backdrop of, of truth-telling. Uh, it's tough enough if, every, if we disagree against the backdrop of the truth. It's impossible if we disagree against the backdrop of mistruth. So um, as you know, I teach at SMU, and this semester I assigned my class the Good Fight podcast with Yasha Monk interviewing you in February about your book. Um, and my students, my 20-year-old students' reaction to the Bill of Obligations surprised me a little bit. Okay. Um, some of them felt that most prescriptions about American polarization right now suggest that everything would be better if we could just go back to the good old days, and they, they're, um, reaction was that they're really, they don't believe that there was a time when we had the good old days and that there was just less transparency and less awareness um, in the American public. So I'd love to know what you just might Look, there's think. a little bit of truth in that. You know, nostalgia is never as good as it's cracked up to be. I think we all romanticize a little bit about the, but there were some qualitatively different things, like basically being a dinosaur. <laughs> I came of age in an era of three networks, mm -hmm. three national networks, uh, lots of editors mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, very different now. I mean, we live in the age of narrow casting, not broadcasting. And if you add up not so much broadcast, but cable, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned podcasts, you've got uh, Sirius Radio, S-I-R-I-U-S, not S-E-R, <laughs> gotta be careful. Uh, the, um, FM, AM, and the like, um, and, base, and everybody online. I mean, everybody's become a publisher. Your name doesn't have to be Salzberger anymore to be a publisher. Mm -hmm. Essentially, social media allows us all to be, to be published. Indeed, on Substack, 
thousands, if not tens of thousands of, you know, I don't know what the numbers are now, are people or publishers. Mm -hmm. so, so I think there's more out there. It doesn't mean that it's more transparent. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there are some investigative things like ProPublica and, other, and whatever, but there used to be scoops and reports. I mean, the Pentagon Papers did come out. Right. Uh, it was the Washington Post and the New York Times 50-odd years ago. Give or, give or take. So newspapers have been r reporting and, and so forth. So you know, I'm not quite sure how to react. It's not that things are necessarily better or worse. They're just different. Mm -hmm. And I think the question is that, I mean, think about it. This democracy was founded close to two and a half centuries ago. When we were formed as a country, we were 3 million people. Now we're edging towards 340 million. Uh, the technologies were fundamentally different, we, and so forth. So on one hand, part of me is amazed we still exist. Mm -hmm. what an, uh, it shows in some ways the adaptability and the flexibility of democracy, the idea that two and a half centuries later, we've only had 27 amendments to the Constitution, 17 after the Bill of Rights. Yet we've, we're still here, we're still in business. And part of me says that is extraordinary. And that, that we've been as dynamic. And it is to me, by the way, the great structural advantage of democracies is not that they get it right, but they're better at dealing with the fact that inevitably you sometimes get it wrong. That's Much right. tougher for non-democracies, for authoritarians, which tend to be more, more brittle uh, than, uh, so, you know, we, you know, we are where we are where we are. You know, my only urgency in this, and I don't pretend to have the answers, but I do want there to be a conversation in groups like this and more broadly about, okay, uh, you know, my friends in the Navy would call it a rudder check. Uh, we need a rudder check. We need, we need to basically say, do we need some mid-course corrections here? Because this system is old and it hasn't kept up in every way and things have changed about how we fund our politics, the media landscape has changed, the population's more than 100-fold larger. It would be passing strange if what we'd inherited we're still adequate. And, and my hunch is if, if, I'll give you one image, which I find useful. If you think of citizenship as a coin with two sides, one side is rights, one side is obligations. Yes, as I said, the right side is not complete, but, that, but a lot of our politics are about rights. The other side of the coin, the obligation side of the coin, rarely gets any attention at all. It's been, what, 60 years since Kennedy asked, you know, asked not, uh, what you can, uh, you know, what the country can do for you. Uh, well, we've, we've asked not. Uh, <laughs> and we, we've got we to start asking. That, that's simply my point. So on, along the ask not lines, um, you talk a, lot of, a little bit about national service, um, the idea that we should value government service. Um, and I'm wondering if um, you feel like people are receptive to that. I mean, it, yeah. it seems to me that that would help with the common identity issue. 100%, about. yeah. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. Right after the book came out, I was in Washington for dinner, and congressmen and women from both sides came up to me and said, we'd love to work with you on national service, which I took as a really encouraging thing. Yeah. Uh, the problem right now with national service is the, is the resource issue. Uh, that we have to incentivize. I, don't, I think mandating it's a mistake because mm -hmm. we'll never get past the debate over it being mandatory. Mm -hmm. uh, but the question is, can we pay for it? But California and other states are introducing serious public service options. 
and often great reforms in America happen at the state level. States was what Justice Brandeis called the laboratories of democracy. So we can have, in California, have, I think at the moment, four large public service programs, and you can incentivize it by paying people. Businesses can offer to hire people who have the experience. Universities can give preferential admissions to young people, say, who would have a year or two. So there's things you can, you can do to uh, incentivize. That can be a training uh, component. But I think it's great, not just for that. It's the best way I know, to, and you were getting at it, Diana, is to give Americans who would normally never come into contact with one another a bit of a common experience. We're so separated now by geography, by educational attainment more than anything else. That's increasingly the, the indicator of political views, by what church we go or, 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 or don't go to, uh, by race, by, by gender, what have you. Uh, what I love about public service, whether it's at the state or national level, it's a, it becomes a little bit of a mixing bowl. Mm -hmm. And I think it would just give people some experiences and some contacts that would be, that would be healthy for, for, this, uh, for this society of ours. Okay, I'm going to um, shift us slightly to foreign policy, um, but talk a little bit about, actually, um, for those of you who don't know, um, Richard was pretty heavily engaged in multi-party talks um, surrounding the peace accords in Northern Ireland and before they, they came to fruition. And, and you were the winner of the um, Tipperary International Peace Award. We just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Friday, Good Friday Accords. Um, and you talk about in your book, Obligation 5 is Reject Violence. And you worry that citizens um, could, not that we'll have a civil war, you know, sort of a cut and dried this side against that side, but more sort of um, what we saw on January 6th, which is um, decentralized acts of political violence. Um, is this the worst case scenario? Is this the likely case in your mind? Or how do we avoid it? Well, the fact that you have to answer it, ask it, and I had to write about it, is bad enough that it's imaginable. And I can't sit here and honestly say, I can't imagine this. I can't. And I, we came pretty close a couple of years ago. One of the good things that happened during the lame duck a few months ago, Congress, was uh, the passage of the, a reform of the Electoral Count Act of 1877. For those of you who didn't focus on it, you're forgiven. But it'll actually make, it makes us less vulnerable in 2024 to what nearly happened in 2020 in terms of how we deal with uh, the choice of, uh, and, of slates of delegates to the Electoral College, how they can be challenged, and so forth. So the machinery got a little bit better. Uh, and it was a good, and it was bipartisan, by the way. And didn't get a lot of attention. Might be the most important thing the previous Congress did, uh, just uh, for what it's, uh, for what it's, but yeah, I worry about the violence. I worry about, uh, I can imagine, and I'm actually surprised it hasn't happened, where you have people protesting for whatever reason, and others can wade into the crowd. We've seen a little bit of it in Charlottesville, and other, but like, it could happen on a larger scale. I can imagine selective assassination of judges. There's been threats uh, about it, attacks on journalists. So yeah, I, uh, it can happen here. I'm not saying it will happen here, but it can happen here. So, and Northern Ireland had a big impact to make. I spent, I was there three years as the US envoy, and then again for six months as the international mediator. I saw what it did to a society, and they're still living with some of the consequences. And so, we shouldn't have the arrogance that it couldn't happen here, we're somehow different or better. And we're obviously the most heavily armed society on the planet. So if it were to happen anywhere, we're in that sense, 
It could, it could and I, I'm not worried about Civil War 2.0, but I am worried about this. And what you learn in places like Northern Ireland, or we've learned from terrorism, is small, small numbers can have outsized impact. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I lived in Washington, and there was, I think, a father and a son, I could be wrong about this, but two people, and they started attacking individuals when they were going to fill up their cars. It was father and son. Snipers. Yeah, and they said, you'd go and get your car filled up, and, they'd, and you'd be shot. And suddenly, filling up your car with gas became the kind of, well, do I really want to do this now? Which is crazy when you think about it, that you have to worry about that. And it just shows you, or we just went through the pandemic. And you saw what happened with how life in a modern society can, can so easily get disrupted. So yeah, I take small amounts of violence could have an outsized impact on our ability to go to work, go to school, essentially go about our, our lives. So yeah, I do take the danger seriously. And one of the things I talk about is there's distributed responsibilities in this book. One of them is for uh, religious leaders. Uh, that they have got to step up. You know, the, you know, we think of the, it's not an original line for me, we think that the role of religious leaders is to comfort the afflicted. I think just as important, they've got to afflict the comfortable. They've got to stand up and say, there is no place in America for using violence to promote your political ends, even on the issues we care most deeply about. That is wrong. They've also got to stand up and talk about our responsibility to one another. You know, that's scripture. We're our brothers and our sisters keeper. Well, who better than religious leaders to talk about that, or civility, or openness to compromise? So yeah, I think you know, they've, got to, they've got to do their share. And that's in some ways the argument in my book. There's not, we're not, American democracy is not gonna be saved from above. If it's gonna be saved, it's gonna be saved from below. What, uh, just to follow up on that, I, what is the role of organizations like this? World Affairs Council, Council on Foreign Relations, DCFR? Well, one is to make informed citizens that we can't succeed as a country if we're not informed about the world, either what, because you know, as look, as we learned, what happens in Wuhan doesn't stay in Wuhan. However it started, it, it comes here. Uh, and we have to make smart foreign policy choices about what it is we do and, and, and don't do. So I think all that is, uh, there's, there's that. But also, I, I gave you a few minutes ago the idea of a coin with two sides, rights and obligations. Think of a second coin. These old days, we used to travel around with several coins in your pocket. Uh, and the other coin is uh, where national security has a foreign policy element, but also this, a domestic element. And groups like this, uh, I think, have to understand national security as more about more than simply foreign policy. Yeah. Well, this, this is the stuff of national security, too. We will not have the uh, resources if we can't pass legislation. We won't have the bandwidth if we're divided and polarized as a people to have a foreign policy. So yeah, so what we're talking about here, it's always groups like this, and I've done it at the council, uh, working with Irene and others, is we've expanded our definition of what counts as, as national security. Mm -hmm. It can't just be the, the traditional stuff the State Department does, as important as that is. It's gotta be something now much broader. We've gotta understand national security through a, a broader framing. Okay.
So now I'm going to ask one more question on foreign policy. I'm counting on one of you to ask a question at least about China or Taiwan. I'm going to throw it open to the group um, after this. But you just wrote, just published a really thoughtful and comprehensive piece with Charlie Kupchin in Foreign Affairs magazine on getting from the battlefield to the negotiating table with Ukraine and Russia. Um, I think the actual title of the article, so you all can go home and read it, is The West Needs a New Strategy in Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about what you're proposing and why now? Uh, happy to, or unhappy to, uh, as you, uh, however you want to put it. Look, I think this has been a remarkable year. If 14 or 15 months ago we'd been meeting here and you had said, okay, Russia's going to invade Ukraine, which we all thought was quite possible, and 15 or 14 months later we would describe where we are now, I would have said, wow, that's really optimistic given what we expected of the, the balance or imbalance between the and Ukraine has done better at a high price, militarily, human life, the society, deaths, refugees, internally displaced at a very high price, but it's done remarkably well. Still controls roughly 85% of its overall territory going back to 1991. And it's a, it's, it's a functioning place, really quite, quite remarkable, in large part because of their own efforts, but also the the role of the United States and the NATO allies and a few, a few uh, others. I'm increasingly concerned about a few things. One is um, our political willingness to sustain it here, our material ability to sustain it. Uh, the cupboards are getting a little bit bare. One of the deep, dark problems facing this country is we no longer have the defense industrial or manufacturing base that we need for one contingency much less for thinking about two, including Asia, three, including the Middle East. We, we had a post-Cold War dial down. Well, the world you know, hasn't dialed down. So there's a real mismatch now between our capabilities and our, our actual or potential uh, commitments. Uh, I worry again about the politics here. I worry about the politics in, um, in Europe. I also worry about the price Ukraine is paying. Uh, you know, it's almost like the old line in Vietnam, we had to destroy the town in order to save it. I, w I don't want to see Ukraine destroyed in the name of saving it. I want there to be a, a viable uh, Ukraine. So we can stick with our current policy, but I also don't believe, even if we were to give Ukraine F-16s, what have you, I don't think it's going to decisively change the battlefield. I could be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. And if I am wrong, so be it. And if Ukraine gains the upper hand militarily, I would say great. But I'm skeptical, in part because I think the Russians have the ability, not just superior numbers, not simply that they're dug in, but I think they have external sources of supply that an extremist will supply them. And I would put China on that list. I believe China right now is too associated with Russia and, and Xi Jinping is too associated with Vladimir Putin to allow him to lose. And China could transship and send arms to Iran or North Korea or, or Belarusia or whatever, and that, Belarus, and that could find its way to Russia. I just don't believe that Ukraine, no matter what, is going to be able to achieve a, a, a significant battlefield victory. Hope I'm wrong, we'll, but we're going to know soon enough. We're going to know in, say, six months. Well, then what? If on, if on the off chance I'm right, do we say, well, we need three or five more years of this? That's going to turn things around? Uh, I'm not sure we can sustain it. I'm not sure Ukraine 
you know, wants to sustain it in terms of the, the price it would pay. So I'm looking for something else. So my view is, yeah, let's give it this one more fighting season, but I'm skeptical. And what I want to do then is, is propose a, a ceasefire uh, with several conditions. And, we'll, and I'd actually go to China and say, hey, you guys put out a peace plan. Well, let's, let's see if you're serious about it. You got more influence on Russia than anybody. Okay, let's test it. But, and it would be as to try to have a ceasefire. We'd give Ukraine, uh, if they accepted it, all sorts of assurances in terms of uh, NATO-like assurances, in terms of economic aid, military aid, and so forth. Uh, and we'd say, we're not giving up on your goals of getting all your territory about it. We just, it's a, it's a means ends. We agree with the ends. We just think the means ought not to be military liberation. We just don't think that's viable. And so that has to come through sanctions, diplomacy. And one day, may, maybe be after Vladimir Putin's history, we would tell Russia the price of integration into the world and into Europe is to give up on your claims on Ukraine. So I think there's a difference, almost like you, I was the US envoy for the Cyprus negotiations, so I went through this there. I've been involved with Korea a lot. Uh, you, you have a situation, it's not peace, but it's an end of active belligerency. And I think that is imaginable, not saying likely, but imaginable. And if it turns out everything I've just said, the Russians blow away, okay, well then we've clarified a few things. And then I think it makes it less difficult to sustain political support for Ukraine. But I think we need to clarify the situation, either to bring it to a, an end, again, even if it's not peace, because it won't be peace. But if not, then I think it provides more a clarity that would help us uh, provide Ukraine with the, the help it would need to, to sustain itself. So I don't see a big downside in this. And you know, what I've, I've been called in the last couple of days everything from a warmonger to an appeaser. <laughs> And maybe I've got it about right. Uh, when the bullets are coming at you from both sides, you or the arrows or whatever they are. Uh, but like a lot of things, you know, this is, this is you know, what I do at the Council on Foreign Relations. You put ideas out there, and people don't like them, put out different and better ideas. But, uh, but I'm worried that as successful as we've been over the last 14, 15 months, I'm not sanguine about the sustainability of this, uh, of this trajectory. All right. Questions from the floor? Oh, we have one right up here. Wow. No age limit for questions here. No. Maybe. You have We're to wait for the microphone. Mike. And tell us your name, please. And where, and what, do you, what do you do for a living? <laughs> Hi, my name is Beckett. Um, what, what grade are you in? Fifth. So I have two questions. The first is, in this modern age, what can we do to actually find out if the information that we're receiving is true and verified? How do we know that it's coming from real source and not just being put out there for propaganda? Great question. Uh, if I were your teacher, I'd give you an A. <laughs> uh, if I were your parents, I'd give you, I'd, I'd double your allowance also. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the, uh, look, it's a great question. And so you have to look at where it's coming from. Certain places have reputations. And you'd say, what kind of a reputation does this newspaper or television station have? Do they have editors? Do they have fact checkers? There's, there's questions you can ask yourself. A second thing you'll do is you'll say, you won't just go to one place. You'll go to two or three places. And you'll say, are other places saying the same thing? Or are they saying different things? Or third thing would be, 
Imagine the question, you, you were looking at something about climate change. One of the things you'd ask yourself is, well, what are the experts saying? Are there articles written in the most important journals where the leading experts in the world are agreeing with this or disagreeing with this? So, but you're asking, but there's, so there's ways to, the word I would use is test the information. And what you have to do as a consumer is always test the, uh, the information. But that's a great question. And my um, other question. Actually, Beckett, I'm gonna ask you to come up and ask your second question at the end, when, just to give other people a chance. Okay. Excuse me. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, oh, we've got one here and one there and then one there. Uh, uh, what, what, and what grade are you in? <laughs> <laughs> just barely older than Beckett. <laughs> I was a little, had a lot of trepidation following him. <laughs> I think he's going to have the better question. But I'd love to thank you uh, for coming once again um, today. I'd like to turn their attention to Latin America foreign policy, if we could. Okay. And I was struck by the recent summit with uh, Brazil's President Lula da Silva, yeah. um, with the Chinese uh, uh, head of state. And it kind of called to mind, and I'll identify my biases. I work extensively in Latin America and I've worked for a long, long time there. What I see as the diminishing influence throughout Latin America. And sure. it's, it's, it's really pretty yeah. disturbing. And I'd love to get your thoughts about what we as a society should do okay. um, so we can regain some of that in, yeah, our, let me in sort our backyard. Of, good question. Uh, what Lula said was uh, truly, truly, truly disappointing, but not unexpected which is really disappointing. It was totally predictable. Uh, I think it's important when it comes to Latin America to distinguish between two things. One is Latin America, either individual countries or collectively acting in the world. And the other is how we and others should see Latin America as a venue. So two very different things. The former, Latin America as actors in the world, not so much. Quite honestly, uh, I don't much care at the risk of being uh, impolitic. Latin Americans don't have a lot of weight. They don't have the ability to project a lot in terms of diplomatic weight, military weight, economic weight. So they're not major players in the, uh, in the rest of the world. And it's the reason they're, they're not major powers and they're not weighted accordingly. They are uh, underachievers because they're not that organized or uh, in terms of collective action. As a venue, I think it's, potentially important to us, I think we make a tremendous mistake, we the United States, by not doing enough there. The fact that we don't have a serious trade relationship with lots of, uh, is, is just nuts. I mean, in the current, no, it's not easy with people like AMLO running Mexico, but what a moment. I mean, what's the big move given supply chains and every, the CHIPS Act? So whether you like it or not, the big move is French shoring, near shoring, well, Latin America ought to be the principal partner for us. It isn't. It's just really frustrating, in part because of them, in part because of our, ourselves. It just never gets the um, uh, attention. China's made some inroads and, and so forth. I wouldn't exaggerate it. But it's, uh, to me, the biggest challenge for Latin America isn't any of this. The real question is governance. I actually think the biggest single question is whether Latin America will be viable countries. And you know, this bit of pendulum swings. Right now, it's a bad phase. It's more of a populist phase. There's, to me, a lot of the Latin American states, the real tragedy is weakness. You don't have capacities. You don't have institutions. If you look at Central America, you look at Mexico. What you have are weak states. 
that simply don't have the reach within their own borders to provide what states are meant to do, which is one, and then that tends to feed not just gangs and cartels, but also feeds populism. So 20, 25 years ago, Latin America was on a great place. It looked like it was emerging as the mo much more democratic, much more market-oriented. It's almost like you wanted to buy shares in Latin America futures, and not so much right now. It's corrected. And I think, I think the, the future is in some ways in doubt, but the last five or 10 years have not been good. If you look what's happened in Colombia, you look what's happened in Chile. I mean, Brazil did get through the electoral crisis. The strength of the judiciary was really impressive, but Lula's now policies are far, far, far more left uh, than I, both his domestic and foreign policies than I would have hoped for. And I think Mexico, the threat to Mexican democracy, Mexico went through decades of one party rule. We thought Mexico had finally emerged as a somewhat more mature democracy. Now the attacks on the electoral machinery. So I just think this is, this is a bad phase for Latin America. And we're not involved enough to really make a difference or a or meaningful difference. And I think that's really short-sighted on our part. Okay, we've got a question here and then there. So I just Jason. told you more about Latin America than I know. <laughs> Jason Galui. Sorry, and then we'll go to you, sorry. Thanks, Richard, for being here. Uh, actually, Beckett's question and your response made me to think of two obstacles to being informed citizens. Yes, sir. Obstacle one is from Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, 1784. He couldn't be with us tonight. But not, with, not today, <laughs> but Lin-Manuel Miranda may think otherwise. But he wrote in 1784 that if our public councils treat their responsibilities like a sport, we will end up with a government that's feeble, arbitrary, and distracted. The second obstacle I think of, based on Beckett's question and your response, is Anthony Downs, 1957, when he wrote about that it's collectively, it makes sense collectively for us to be as informed as possible. But individually, it's irrational to be informed because it's too costly to go get the relevant information. So when you answered Beckett's question, you gave a list of ways to be informed but for, perhaps for the everyday citizen, that's very costly in terms of time. So how do we, owe, how do we minimize that cost on the citizens? Couple things, good question. One is, um, I'd probably disagree a little bit with costly and time. If people took half an hour or 20 minutes a day, one could have a degree of familiarity with the uh, issues and I would think it's worth it. But second of all though, the best time to get people informed and to build habits to do this are in school. You know, the one thing Americans do, is, at least through the age of 16, is they go to school. So I would think information literacy ought to be on the curriculum of every uh, school. The other thing that ought to be on the curriculum of every school is civics. So let me, can I beat yes. my drum do, for a minute? Do your uh, talk. I think it is, uh, as short-sighted as anything we are doing as a country, not to have civics be a staple of our education. We have roughly 4,000 plus or minus uh, two and four-year colleges and universities in this country. You can graduate from upwards of 95, 98% of them and never haven't taken a course in civics. I mean, I don't know what it's like at SMU and all that. Sure, you offer the courses, but do you require them as a condition of graduation? 
No. And you tell students, you have to take two courses out of the following 62 courses in order to meet this requirement. So people can navigate those requirements. So you can graduate from SMU, and you wouldn't know the Constitution if it hit you over in the head. And I don't mean to pick on SMU. It happens to be local. But the same thing could be said of virtually every Ivy League school. Uh, so there's that same thing about middle schools and high schools. And either we don't teach it or we teach a semester of it and it's not very good and so forth. So we ought to make a requirement, I would say. Indeed, if, I, if this book has one real lasting effect, I'm hoping I can trigger a national conversation about civics and to have it, what it ought to, to get it in our schools and to require, and then we can talk about what ought to be, how to flesh it out in terms of what would actually be a, uh, but that to me would help, that people would get a grounding and an understanding in the basic uh, about democracy and why it's valued, what it takes for democracies to, uh, to succeed. They'd be exposed to the basic documents. They'd, information literacy would be part of a modern civics uh, curriculum. And I think we would therefore give people a grounding in citizenship that they would take uh, with them. And I, I take your point. There's at some point, uh, you can't force people to be informed, and it's competing with everything else they've got to do to put food on the table, time with family, time you know, to watch sports and all that. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know, I watch ESPN before I watch uh, serious stuff, I admit it. Uh, though I will say tonight I'm here not watching the Knicks-Cavaliers game. <laughs> I just want you to understand the full extent of my commitment to, uh, to civics and to these, uh, and to these uh, issues. Uh, and if anyone does know the score, you're allowed to hold up a sign. But, uh, but, the, uh, but so look, I think, so that's where, again, I think the grounding in school becomes important. And I think also if people understand the connection about why government matters, and it gets over the cynicism. I mean, you, I mean, the fact that more than half of the eligible voters didn't vote in the last midterm election, despite how critical it was, tells me that a lot of Americans don't see why it matters. And it turns out it does matter. So again, we've got to draw the, the, the linkages. Yeah. But I think but you, what you suggest is right, and it's a constant struggle. Like, you never get over the hump. You never get over the hurdle here. It's just something you've constantly got to work. Wait for the mic, please. Introduce yourself. I'm in the middle of reading an 800-page biography of George Marshall. And some of the events during the 39 to 41 period seem to be uh, analogous to those that we're facing now, the isolationism versus involvement in the, more involvement in the world, the world historical significance of what was happening then that people could see happening both in the Far East and in Europe, compared to the Ukrainian situation where if, if Putin can win, that has implications that are much more serious than just uh, what might be concretely obvious. And I'm wondering, and this is really a kind of public diplomacy issue as well, whether there is value in public recognition of, and this is more of a general history question, whether there is value in the president or others making explicit analogies to prior periods because sure. yep. history teaches us lessons, and particularly that period because it pained me to hear you say, and I'll just end it with this, that there is a fear that the United States cannot respond to the need for material support when 
we still are the engine of democracy, and we can do anything we want to. Thank Got you. It. Thank you. Look. Um, one of the great court, I used to teach, I couldn't get into Harvard, I got rejected when I applied, but I was, I did, I was able to get there through the back door of being a professor. And <laughs> one of the courses I taught one year was uh, the courses on the uses of history. And um, it was developed by two other professors, one of them took leave for a year, Ernie May, so I taught it with uh, Richard Neustadt, and it was a real treat to teach it. But I am a great believer in the uses of history for decision makers. Indeed. I know we're here supposedly talking about my book, but there's a book that they wrote called Thinking in Time, which is a great book about what you might call applied history. And you know, history is not, it doesn't have recipes like a cookbook, but it, it does offer insights. There are parallels. And so I'm a, a great believer in it for policymakers, also a great believer in it for citizens. I think presidents should talk about it more. I think uh, most presidents don't teach enough. In some ways, I, you know, the greatest teacher we've ever seen in the White House, I would argue, was FDR. And the, the radio talks he gave. I think you were going to say Lincoln. No, I actually think FDR, the regular, because also if you look at FDR's moment, and he saw years before others, he saw, if you, to use Churchill's phrase, the gathering storm, mm -hmm. but he also understood that the country wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And what he gradually did with his radio addresses was try to educate the country. And he had a real sense of where it needed to go, but also the pace it could get there. Mm -hmm. And he knew if he got too far out in front, he'd look behind him, there'd be nobody there. And, but he also knew the danger if he didn't leave. And I think the Oval Office is potentially a great, a great classroom. Mm -hmm. And most presidents don't use it. Reagan used it a bit, Kennedy used it. Uh, uh, a bit in the modern uh, era, but most presidents don't use it nearly enough or, or very successfully. So, uh, so I agree that there's a lot to be gleaned, even though situations are never uh, alike. I do recommend, particularly for young people here, that if, I always say, people say, if I want to have a career in this, whatever, what should I study? I always recommend history. Mm -hmm. If there's one area I, 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 I tend to emphasize, it's to to study history. I think there's, there's more to be gleaned from that than uh, anything else. And, uh, and even just as a private person, to read history, to read biography, it seems to me is uh, you, you do yourself uh, a favor. But yeah, I think it's a great way to, to teach and learn is to look at history, the likes, the dislikes. And again, it gives you, it's a pretty good provider of insight. Unfortunately, I think we are out of time, and I really appreciate your uh, coming tonight, and um, thank you very much. Let's thank Richard. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have to say that the council also works with around 1,000 high school teachers to introduce, reintroduce civics and global curriculum back into the classroom. So we agree with you there. Thank you for a great discussion. We knew it would be. We have a very small token of our appreciation to both of you. Thanks very much for coming out tonight. We'll see you next time. <laughs>